You gotta look where other people aren't looking. If you're just playing a numbers game, then you gotta turn over a lot of rocks, or you have to have a lot of great connections. I like tertiary markets because I think you've still got a ton of mom and pop deals. Let's say the market turns sideways on you. If you are already below market, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. A lot of people who are heavily leveraged, etc., they've got a lot of trouble coming if the rents move sideways or even backtrack a little bit. This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, the show that will teach you how to build wealth with real estate without buying yourself another job. I'm your host, Taylor Lote, and today our guest is George Roberts. George is a former data scientist who is now a full-time multifamily real estate investor. He did a lot of things in the middle there, though. He actually started with multifamily and decided to scale up into multifamily. Today, we're digging into a few key lessons that have enabled him to scale up and go full-time multifamily. We discuss how he has hired virtual assistants to help him in his business so he can focus on doing more and doing more deals. We also discuss his investment model, how he invests in tertiary markets, that is much smaller markets outside of major metropolitan areas, and how he finds value in deals, what he focuses on, economic indicators, and so much more. I know a lot of you out there are high-earning, busy professionals like George used to be, and maybe you're daydreaming about becoming full-time multifamily real estate investors. Well, George is a great case study, and you're going to learn a ton today. Once again, I'm your host, Taylor Lode. I'm a real estate investor. I focus on multifamily and self-storage investing. If you'd like to learn more about potentially investing with us in the future, just go to investwithtaylor.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here every weekday. Now, let's talk to George. George, great to have you on the show today. For our listeners out there, could you tell us a bit about yourself, your background, what you're doing in real estate today, and then we'll rewind the clock. Yeah, absolutely, Taylor. First of all, thanks for having me on. What I'm doing today, I'm a multifamily syndicator. I love it. It's a great place to invest, and I love the privilege of being able to help others become wealthy alongside me. If you want to backtrack a little bit. Yes, I did start up in single family. It's a great place to be. Really, it was a very long start. For many years, I was very busy in tech. I was a scientist. I became an award-winning data scientist. I was just really a very, very busy guy. I had one rental unit and it didn't really strike me as a, a way to go until my sister came to me and said, hey, let's start a construction company. That was an interesting rabbit hole. So started out with her. She really took over the company and, and that was fine with me because I was very excited to do my own thing, which then became Value Add Multifamily, which brings us basically back up to the present. Great. Okay. So I think a lot of folks get stuck at that first single family because they might not have the teams and the systems and they just get overwhelmed by the amount of work that it can take. What did your single family investing look like? Did you have systems behind it before you decided to make that pivot? I mean, how did you get started? No, there wasn't even a thought. It was completely a sideline. And I decided when I was going to come back to it, just to steal a phrase from my later field of data science, I wanted to do real estate at scale. So the second time I came in, I said, hey, okay, you know what? I know from working with my sister that I love entrepreneurship. 
Okay. I want my own gig and I already know how to be a landlord. I've got my six figure plus job, not ready to let go of that. And so I looked for something a little more passive and found multifamily. So yeah, the second time through a hundred percent, I'm looking at systems, hired a VA, did my best to do it right the first time. There's a lot of things you can do. People talk about VAs, but Fiverr, Upwork, all those sorts of gig economy help. It's amazing. I mean, you can get everything from your logo to podcast support, everything. It was all about doing it right and making sure that I don't have to sit at the desk all day long. That's very wise. I have several VAs on my team and having folks on your team to handle things for you is so critical just to be able to not spend all your time working in your business so that you can go work on your business. But it's a big struggle to find the right person. I've gone through, frankly, so many folks till I found the right ones to handle various tasks for me. What was your process like in finding the right VA for you? So I did it the easy way. I went to an agency. You go to an agency, right, they take care of it, and you don't have to deal with the hiring or firing. They'll ask you, you know, how are they performing, et cetera, but really makes it easy. I'm paying a little bit more now. If you're willing to go direct, I mean, I know you can get probably good help for $2. I've heard people getting great help for $3. I mean, my goodness. I mean, it's crazy what you can get. You go direct. It's just amazing what people are getting. But look, I'm paying six and I've never had any trouble. So I just continue on. Where are your VAs located? Oh, it's in Delhi, India. Delhi, India. Okay. Most of my mm-hmm. VAs are in in the Philippines. So yeah. for me, in my experience, building systems for them to work within, setting expectations and everything like that has been critical. But for you, building out the team system processes, what has that looked like so that your VA can work effectively? I'll start with my false start, which was that you have to have all these SOPs. Oh, that that hung me up. By the time I wrote up my SOPs, the guy said, yeah, I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> the way to do it is you get some $30 video software, right? Just record your screen. Whatever you're doing, if it's repetitive, if it takes you five minutes to do it, it'll take you five minutes to record it, and that'll be the last time you have to do it. So the first system that I put in place was just simply recording myself doing the things I do. If it took me five minutes to do, it probably took me an hour to write it up. So that's for the birds. First thing is just know how to communicate with your VA. And then I think, again, you got to decide what level you're going to go at it. If you want to hire a bunch, 100%, I would say you got to go in and hire them directly. You probably have to have a some entry-level task, some weeder thing to make sure that this is somebody that can not only get things done, but that they get it done in a reasonable amount of time. Where are the hiccups? Do they understand you? Do you understand them? You know, but again, if you're just hiring one, it's not so bad to go through an agency. You can you can get things very quick. But really, I think the next thing you need to do is then figure out how to perpetuate things. Ideally, you're not going to hire anybody to do things that you can do better yourself, right? I mean, again, you can take that two ways. Listen, I don't care how they are when they come in, but I tell them that their job is to get better at this than me. I might show somebody how to do some video editing. I could say like, okay, you know, I see what you're doing here and we need a dissolve transition or something. But I say, listen, spend a little time each day learning and make sure 
that you become the expert, getting the right tools. Because again, look, you get good tools. If you don't have good tools, you're wasting your time. When you hire somebody, you don't have good tools, then you're just wasting your time. You're paying for their time. doesn't make any sense. So make sure you get the right kind of editing tools. I mean, you get stuff with AI right now. I have somebody go through with AI. All she has to do is check and see, like, do these clips kind of make sense? Okay, good. And so that's the thing, right? You, you want to let them take over the process because eventually they're going to become the expert. So when it comes to things like video editing, you know, I make sure that she's from time to time documenting what she's doing. So eventually the idea is let them take over the standard operating procedure issues, make sure that they train the next one, et cetera. Okay, great. So how has having a team, having VAs on your team enabled you to do more in real estate because we could hire a huge team, but if we're not ultimately growing as a result of it, then, you know, what's it matter? What's it all for? So how's that? Well, two things. First of all, it's made it possible. I did the first 25 episodes of my podcast myself, start to finish. And I, I thought I was going to do it forever and I got to 25 and it was you know, no more, no more. So without that, I just simply wouldn't be putting out the content. Now I'm able to do different things. I can do, I can focus on YouTube videos. I can have guests every week. And more importantly, it's not just about doing more in real estate, but doing more in life. I, my VA right now, she's been with me, I want to say at least a year. The one before that was with me for about 13 months. And it's gotten to the point where I hardly need to communicate. I just, I set the expectations and now I get to live my life. I do a lot of things that I couldn't do in the past. Like, for example, I uh, spent a lot of time dancing. Every day I go out. After this podcast, I'm heading out to, to tango lessons. And to just know that things are taken care of, that things are getting done, no matter what, it's completely freed up my entire life. Nice. So let's talk a bit, a bit about the types of deals that you're doing and really dig into the, uh, you know, the meat of the multifamily that you're investing in. So tell us a bit about where you're investing and your investment model. Right. So my basic investment thesis, you got to look where other people aren't looking. If you're just playing a numbers game, then you got to turn over a lot of rocks or you have to have a lot of great connections. So I like tertiary markets because I think you've still got a ton of mom and pop deals. And those mom and pop deals, a lot of times, that's where you're going to find below market rents. Huge. If you can get a place with below market rents, somebody who hasn't optimized their property, then it's very likely that you're going to have the opportunity to get something, again, below market. You may have a very low break-even occupancy. Let's say the market turns sideways on you. If you are already below market, you don't have a whole lot to worry about. A lot of people who are heavily leveraged, et cetera, they've got a lot of trouble coming if the rents move sideways or even backtrack a little bit. So tertiary markets, I think, to me, are are interesting in some ways, but also concerning in other ways, right? There are a whole lot of tertiary markets, and mm -hmm. some of them are stagnant, and they're going to stay that way. And the, the mm -hmm. economics aren't really there, which the economic fundamentals drive our success in real estate. So how do you assess whether a tertiary market has economic fundamentals that are in line with your investment model? Sure. I would say the same way that people are doing any other type of market, primary, se secondary, et cetera. 
you were still looking for people moving in, like for example, East Tennessee. People are moving all into the rural areas of Tennessee. It just seems like it almost doesn't matter where. So you can have some of these places that they may not be very populous and it may be a little harder to find boots on the ground, but you find the right partner, run the deal the right way, and you can have some very, very beautiful results. Yeah, I would not be the sort of person to recommend that you go into a deal where you, you don't have the proper demographics. I, I like tailwinds, not headwinds. So is that the part of the country you're investing in primarily, East Tennessee? It is one of them. I think that the Midwest, for example, and maybe the the Upper South is a great place. People have been going to the Sun Belt for the longest time, and that's fine. And I've still got investments there. I wouldn't I wouldn't turn one down. If you say, hey, I got the best deal right now. I want you to come along, George. I'm not going to say no, but where I'm trying to focus, places like Cincinnati, places that are growing, but which are not yet uh, crazy. Uh, another example would be uh, Kansas City. A lot of people don't know where's the your number two rail and transportation hub in America. Everybody knows all about Chicago, but Kansas City is growing like crazy. I think a lot of these Midwest and Upper South markets, they're beautiful. There are a lot of people looking there, but again, it's it's not crazy. I started out in Central Florida. Even three and a half years on, it's a way different game today than it was back then. Absolutely. Central Florida, Florida in general has had huge increases in insurance rates and not to mention property taxes, but insurance has been a big one there. So you're a data guy. And one of the biggest changes in terms of the economic data when it comes to real estate over the last year and a half has been the huge increase in interest rates. How do you see that affecting the real estate market more broadly and then more specifically your particular investment strategy? Well, if you don't mind, just first, I'll start with my own. Mm -hmm. It's really important to have reserves. People talk about not being over leveraged. That's true. But reserves will take you a lot further when things go wrong. If you're, you have a little less leverage versus the amount of money that you could have put on the side for that rainy day how long you get to survive, it's huge. As for how it's going to impact us, interesting. I mean, I don't have a crystal ball, but I'll tell you though that rates seem to have been going down just as fast over the last month as they went up the month prior. And we we don't really know where they're going, but if you have cash flow, you're going to survive. It's going to be, I think, a lot harder to get these deals where you, you have to deal with bridge debt because we don't know. A lot of people saying rents are going rates are going to go down. We don't know for sure. I would not, I, I wouldn't rely on that's another reason why I do like some of these smaller deals. I think that is keeping me safe. The main thing is survive. Survive the next couple of years. And I think things will be just uh, peachy keen. People have been saying survive till 25. I don't know what rhymes with 26, but <laughs> it, it may, <laughs> the, the, the further we get, the more I think that we, we don't know. It might be well more than another year you have to survive. But again, you can survive a couple of years. You're fine. So you say these smaller deals, quote unquote, <clears throat> I think depending on who you're talking to, everybody's going to have a different number in their heads about what constitutes a smaller sure. deal. We're obviously not talking single family in this case, because you're out of the single family game, but in terms of unit count or what have you, what is smaller deals quote unquote mean to you? My first deal was 14 and that's definitely a smaller deal, 
but it was huge compared to my single family experience. So it was very exciting. So I'm just saying, you know, hey, 20, 50, 60, I think there's a lot of good deals in there up to 80. Again, that's where you don't have the big fish. Big fish are not interested and you have different competition. It tends to be a little bit less sophisticated. And I think the idea is wherever you're at, you want to dominate the playing field. And I think this is the place that I can dominate at this time. And then I think, you know, hey, as you mentioned, when those rates change, and they will change in the future, hopefully very much for the better, then you may see me playing in some larger spaces. I do have larger deals. Depends on the partners. Again, if it makes sense, it makes sense. So you mentioned competition, the competition being different and maybe a little less stiff in the smaller deals. But what is your typical competition in a 20, 60, 80 unit deal? Everything I invest in is is much larger. All our deals are much larger. So we're not playing in that that space. But if you have less competition, that could be blue ocean situation. Absolutely. And a lot of times, look, if you get in your LOI fast enough, you might be the only one. It's really nice to be in that situation. A lot of times, though, I'll have to tell you, I'm not always the one who's looking for the deal. People send me deals, and I much prefer to be in that situation. I'd rather create content. I'd rather mentor people. To me, this is very rewarding, teaching, mentoring, interacting with people, looking at a thousand spreadsheets. I've kind of done that. (laughs) (laughs) So as folks send you deals, that in my time in, in the real estate space since 2016, that has changed a lot because they're you know, brokers are always a constant in the space. And then pre-COVID, there were a lot of people trying to basically wholesale brokered deals in the commercial real estate space, which is completely ridiculous, but they were trying it anyway. When folks send you deals, what does it typically look like? Will they already have it under contract? Will it be with a broker? Will they have it underwritten? How does that work? Well, say it's evolving. I mean, in the past, I've been telling people, you know, hey, just send it to me. I'll work with you. But, you know, as I get a little more advanced, I'm having to get a little more picky. So I I wouldn't look askance if somebody sends me something they haven't gotten the LOI yet. I understand it might be your first deal. And you really want to make sure that you're doing the right thing, that you're not overpaying. You want to make sure that you will have a sponsor to come in and help you finish that deal. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But you know, ideally I'm working with people that are confident they've got the LOI and they're saying, look, I need somebody to sign in the loan. I need to, to make sure, you know, that before we move forward, that, uh, that we've got somebody who's very credible, you know, that helps me if they have at least the confidence to submit the LOI. So finding someone to sign on the loan is a big hurdle that a lot of newer investors can face. And on the person who's signing on the loan, you're putting a pretty significant amount of skin in the game when you sign on a loan on a deal that maybe somebody else is operating. How do you approach vetting that person, building that relationship? Because we, you know, we don't want to just get into a deal with anybody out there, right? So how do you approach vetting that? I got to trust the people. I got to trust the communication because that's one of the biggest things. I think a lot of people, they get into trouble and they don't want to say anything. And that's the worst thing to do, particularly if you're new. Don't do that. Whenever you got other investors, whether it's limited partners, JV, other general partners, KP, et cetera, you want to let on as soon as possible if you're having trouble for two reasons. First of all, they may be able to help you steer the ship. And the other thing is 
that if there's a capital call, better that it come early and that you all get wind of it. So a few things. Yeah. I mean, I've got to have control of the deal then if I'm going to go sign on it or I have to be dealing with people that are more established. So if it's newer, then I'd want to make sure that I have a fair amount of control over the deal and I have to really trust the communication. Mm. So that communication piece is huge. And I think newer investors and folks who are newer to partnering with other investors are maybe more hesitant to communicate tough news. Do you find yourself having to teach people that kind of consistently or do they just kind of weed themselves out when they don't communicate well? You know, maybe that's a better way to say it. Uh, As you said, in the latter case, you know, it's hard to tell how people react when things are difficult. So again, you know, you really just have to see how are they handling the the simpler situations. But again, my advice would be that if you're, if you think you're over communicating, you're probably communicating enough. Again, you're going to earn a thousand brownie points with people if you tell them what's going wrong, when it's going wrong. If anybody ever hears anything bad about what's going wrong in your deal somewhere else, that's, it's impossible to repair. So before we get to the three questions I ask every guest in the show, what what advice would you give to yourself after you already had that single family? You have this big goal, but you've learned a lot of lessons along the way. If you're able to go back and communicate to single family George, what advice would you give yourself? I would say that you know you just have to go for it. I wish I would have started earlier. I had no idea how exciting entrepreneurship can be because I think the first time I just did it in such a hands-off way really didn't focus on it at all. So again, just just jump on it. I mean, it's such an adventure. Again, my whole life has been an adventure. Being a heavily cited bioscientist, award-winning data scientist, I have gotten to uh, research and explore a lot of amazing things, but there's just nothing like being the captain of your own ship. Love it. Right now, we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, George, I've got three questions I ask every guest on the show. Are you ready? I'm ready. Hit me. Great. First one, what is your number one book recommendation? I'm going to say The Seven Habits, one of the first business books I ever read. It's still one of the best. It'll help you understand a lot of what's changed in our culture over the last hundred years. He'll tell you it's all about character. Nowadays, self-help is all about techniques. And I think Stephen Covey has some really amazing things to say. Timeless. Love it. I like that. Who or what inspires you? Adventure. Everything I do, it's got to be exciting. And I just love in every situation to to just take it to the limit, just see how far I can go. Question number three, think about George at 80 years old. What advice, if he was able to talk to George of today, would he give to George of today? Is to go all in. When I look at the last 20, 30 years of my life, everything I've done, it's been exciting. I've done very well. But you know what? You know, it may seem like life's a marathon, but I see it as a series of sprints. And you know what? Leave it on the field. When I look back, I often think, you know what? I could have ran a little faster because you know what? This gig or that career or this this phase of my life, it doesn't last as long as you think. Go all in. That is true. George, thank you so much for joining us today. If folks want to find you or get in touch, where can they track you down? You can get me at george at robertscapitalenterprises.com or find me on LinkedIn. I'm very active. Awesome. Thank you once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please take a moment and leave us a rating interview on Apple Podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and catch us here 
every weekday. Right now, I hope you have a great rest of your day, and we'll talk to you on the next one.